Hey, you up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep, getting to sleep. Well, welcome. I, I hope, I believe you are in the right place because uh, this is Game of Drones presented by Sleep With Me, a Game of Thrones podcast that's here to put you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All, all you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights and press play. We're going to do the rest. What's, what's the rest? What is this? Pi- what did you say? Game of Thrones podcast that put me to sleep. What? What? What are you doing? Here's what I'm gonna, here's what I'm proposing. You know, give me a second to pitch it, and then you can you know decide after I do it. I mean, I'll probably bungle the pitch, but uh, I'm gonna create a safe place. I'm gonna all I'm gonna do is talk about Game of Thrones. I'm gonna discuss the episode. It's gonna be. Uh, I'm gonna try to do it in a lulling, soothing voice. I'm going to go on a a few tangents. I'm going to try to make it uh, interesting and distracting, but not, uh, well, maybe not super interesting, kind of interesting. And then after I discuss the episode, I'll say, like, you know, you know, you ever wonder, I think one time I did a segment about eye color or hair color. Why, why are some people have this hair color? Well, and then I'll say, well, you know, it reminds me of uh, my hair color, which is this. Which reminds me of that. And the whole purpose of podcasts is to distract the part of your mind that's racing, running, listening. You know, the part that's keeping you tossing and turning. I'm going to try to distract you from whatever's running through your brain by talking about Game of Thrones. Now, by the way, we don't, we have episodes on Tuesday and Thursday night that aren't Game of Thrones. And I got about 190 episodes. So if you, if you don't like Game of Thrones, let me know. I can give you a Game of Thrones a feed without Game of Thrones stuff in it, but we have plenty of old episodes. Check those out. But I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones. But I'm going to talk about Game of Thrones. All you got to do is lie back and listen. And I'm just going to be like a friend. If someone said, hey, you're kind of like Mr. Rogers. You come and say, hey, you know, with dementia. And I just kind of talk and talk. And you just got to listen. But at some point you're going to be like, well, you had me when you said Bronn and Tyrion as superheroes. But then once you implemented that uh, uh, concept you lost me because it was kind of you didn't really get right to the point but you know it's good you lost me because I fell asleep the thing was I noticed when I was listening to you the criti- hypercritical listening part of my brain was listening too and it so it wasn't talking to me so this is great that's the feedback I get and um, usually people are more eloquent than than that, but that's what I do. I just try to talk. I try to soothe. I try to lull, dull, bore you to sleep. You just gotta listen, and that way you don't gotta think. You don't gotta think about anything. I do the. Uh, I don't know if you technically call it thinking. Maybe light thinking. I don't know what that is. Um, pondering. Maybe I don't do much thinking here. Definitely no. Well, I do philosophize, but more of like um, a uh, you know grammar school level philosophizing. But yeah, I'll do the uh, pondering, I'll do the uh, tangents, and I'll handle the meandering. And you just kick back and go to sleep. All right, I'm here for you. That's the main message I'm trying to get across. I hope this podcast works for you. If it does, I'll be here uh, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday nights with a little uh, uh, button of episode on Monday nights. But yeah, and I hope I help you fall asleep. We're on the web, www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. Game of Drones episodes are at sleepingpodcast.com slash drones. 
You can get a hold of me, feedback at Dear Scooters, the email. You can comment on the website. You can get a hold of me on Twitter. That's a good place. I try to tweet or retweet, sweet, retweet, tweet. I try to tweet or retweet, retweet. I'm having trouble saying that. Retweet uh, sleep-related articles there, usually Babs or Deb. Hook me up with some good articles. So that's that. Facebook, you can get a hold of me there. It's fine, too. And on Facebook, I put the bloopers. So if you ever wonder what, you know, uh, if you thought this podcast was strange, you listen to the bloopers and you'll be like, okay. Yeah, I was wondering about that guy. That answers most of my questions. Uh, you know, he's, you know he's, he really is an interesting guy with big quotes. That's it. I hope I help you fall asleep. Um, if you want to help out the podcast, you're a big fan. You say, hey, well, how can I help you out? One listener initiative. That's the way. I got it. If we can get emails this week, texts, or not texts, but <sighs> I've been hearing from a lot of people this week about how they've taken apart, taken part, and taken part in one listener initiative. All you got to do, I'm looking for 1% of you that are listening right now to find one person to listen to the podcast. Ideally, someone that uh, enjoys lulls and dulls or, you know, is having trouble falling asleep would be our prime candidates. And they say, hey, you got a you got a kind of offbeat uh, sense of humor. Your, your, your sense of humor is not, uh, that's what you say to them. But I, I know this guy's got a, you know, a strange little podcast, quaint. It's not how I'd describe his podcast, but if I was equating it to a bed and breakfast, it's more quaint than creepy, but, you know, it's a touch of both. So there, that's what we are. We're a touch of quaint, a touch of creepy to help you fall asleep, I guess. Um, or maybe someone trying to explain something and doing it in a way that leaves you, you know. So that's, a, you know, just tell somebody about the podcast. I've been trying to think of a way to make it more interactive, like uh, – if you have anybody that's willing to send, you know, have their picture taken while you explain to them the podcast or right after and they give you a look like, wait a second, what would you just say? That, what? You, a podcast but put me to sleep with lulls? I thought lulls meant something else in Internet language. Well, this is poor, pointless Internet language. P-I-L, not a, a you know, regular I-L, regular Internet language. Yeah, send me a picture or, you know, make a little thing like this is what I said. I, I know someone at, um, I guess there was a Radio Future panel at uh, George Washington University this week. And someone shared about the podcast. I want to thank that person. And I think that's probably the look the panel gave them. As far as I could piece together from a couple of people that posted about it on Twitter, I was like, wait, what? Say what? Wait, a guy, he just talks in an odd voice about Game of Thrones to push you to sleep? Hmm. If that's it, that's probably the, what we're looking for is people go, hmm, maybe I'll try that. And if you try it, see if it works for you. Hopefully it does. But that's a, how you can help the podcast. One listener initiative is what I call it because uh, one listener initiative is what I call it. And the reason I call it that is because it sounds like a buzz, you know, sounds like a buzzword. Words, marketing type. It sounds good, I think. One listener initiative. I like saying it. Maybe it feels good in my mouth. It does the words, uh, even though my voice is kind of, you know, going off the rails. But uh, so find one person that uh, needs the podcast and it might work for 
you know, don't tell your boss unless you and your boss work at some like uh, like uh, Acme, what was whoopee cushion factory. Um, and he's a stereotypical whoopee cushion uh, entrepreneur, as opposed to like a uh, you know you know the more interesting whoopee cushion entrepreneur would be pretty you know I this is not funny. I don't know. But if you can tell someone about the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. Hopefully they'll appreciate it. And then the podcast will grow on its own and we don't got to worry about anything else. So thank you so much for listening. And I hope I help you fall asleep. It's time for uh, gratitude. Thank yous. Crone. Sweet, sweet Crone. Miller Smith. Barky. Jester. Gods. Of uh, of uh, this earth and other er- other earth-like places, but mostly this place, because this is real and not fiction. I'm calling in, prayer, praying up, praying out uh, with you know thank yous. Wish my vocabulary was deeper. I'd have something other than thank you, gratitude. Um, I almost had one. Um, I guess it was gratitude, but. Gratitude, you know, gravita, no, that's not, but I'm thankful, you know, how about that, thankful, that's like thank you, but one word, uh, a state I'm in of thankfulness, and that state is like the thankfulness state of mind, because you guys, you know, because of, uh, I guess, some people that obviously were inspired by one of you, or someone associated with you or someone that doesn't have anything to do with you, but, you know, energy stuff behind the scenes, you know, cosmic, transcendental, whatever, you know, they probably believe in someone. And I believe in you, but it doesn't mean one cancels the other out. Um, but I want to thank Chris Posty Posterson, who does our music. I want to thank uh, Scotty and Jennifer, our icons in art. I want to thank Damon D. He's on the backup. I want to thank uh, Lord and Lady, the D. Frenestrator, Silvertones, Funder from Down Under, General, Baroness, Divine Miss M. More, more people that I probably already forgot. And uh, that, you know, I want to thank you for them forgiving me for forgetting them, even though it hurts because I, you know, I know what it feels like to be forgotten. And if I've forgotten you, don't be afraid to send me, hey, jerk. Or, hey, you know, could you uh, say, you know, you forgot me and it hurt and, uh, you know, I just, you know, wanted you to know that. Get it off your chest. Don't carry it around, you know. I could probably take it. It's a good test to see if I could take it, so do that. My guys, this week um, I want to get right to the point. I heard from uh, Jacob K. on Twitter in Slovakian, and uh, he had a lovely saying, um, that I don't want to butcher, but if, you know, if, if everybody wants to hear it, but thank you, Jacob K. I want to thank Eli H. over at uh, Touch Arcade. You know, first of all, I want to thank Eli H., the person who listens to podcasts, had a lot of nice things to say to me on Twitter. Then he writes an article over at Touch Arcade, a very nice article about the podcast, so I want to thank him for that. And if you're new from Touch Arcade, thank you, Life. This podcast helps you sleep because he's the one that brought you here. I want to say hi to Hey Jude or Hey to Hey Jude. Uh, hey to Brian. Brad F., uh, who, who said I'm Facebook. He's got a, 
he's just another person that has stuff going on physically that keeps it kept him from going to sleep. And he said the podcast is helping him, and I'm just uh, nearly speechless. But luckily, Jester, you got me, you know, speaking and stumbling. So thank you, Brad, Wendy G over on Facebook. Thank you, Lauren Chops over on Twitter, Stasha, Kirsten, our, our architective. Uh, Julia, Suzette L, Moksha Grin, uh, Audio Bonsai Podcast, Super ADD Mom, thank you, and whoever uh, introduced you to the podcast, thank you, Andrea V for joking around with me a little bit, uh, Julia C for getting back to me, Claire H, I want to thank you again because uh, last time, last episode, I was thanking you. And then I was switching over to check something else. I didn't even feel like I gave you my full attention with your thank you. Because then I got distracted by whatever, some panel the podcast got me. I don't know. So thank you, Claire. And then I want to thank God of Dance for the iTunes review. Thank you, God of Dance. I don't know if you're, um, which God of Dance you are. Like, God of Dance. Uh, I don't say, I know it's from a musical. Gotta dance, gotta dance, gotta dance. Is that a musical? Or if it's the guy from my uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, Days and Confused, but I think he says, I want to dance. Uh, so um, thank you all. Gods, thank you for putting me in this position to do something that um, is actually useful to people. And uh, thanks for having the people let me know that's useful. And thank you, gods, for just kicking back and letting it all unfold and then taking credit for it. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, I'll talk to you guys soon at the end of the show. Bye. All right, everybody. I'm glad you're here. We're uh, talking about uh, Season 3, Episode 2, Dark Words, Dark, Dark Wings. I think is the episode's title, Dark Words, Dark Wings. I hope it's not dark wings, dark words, because that would just be embarrassing, but it could be. A little, a little behind the scenes, I'm back on Spiral Notebooks. Uh, I got a 12-pack of Spiral Notebooks on, you know, bought a 12-pack of those. Previously, I, I vacillated between legal pads, yellow legal pads, and Spiral Notebooks. With the legal pads... Uh, Winning out just because of uh, more room, I guess. But then I stumbled upon this new way of using a spiral notebook and writing from writing in two directions at once, which sounds way more than impressive. It is basically I have a spiral notebook with well, a steno pad. It's not a spiral notebook, steno pad. I start on the the normal side, like a normal steno stenographer or regular note taker would do. That's my um, after-the-glass slipper side. But then when it's time for a game of drones, I flip over the same steno pad, and then I start writing from the back, which is now the front for game of drones. And somewhere in the middle, hence both podcasts will meet, kiss each other via paper. That goes from illegible to totally illegible when I'm writing on both sides. But it's also convenient. I can keep it in the bag. The uh, cardboard or whatever paperboard covers of a, a steno pad are better for my messy Marvin syndrome that we've talked about. 
so I don't, you know, I don't lose any pages. It's slightly more packable. Um, why do I share this with you? I don't know. It was on my mind. I got a steno pad in my hands, live for me. Not a live steno pad. Oh boy, that would be that'd be surrealistic. Yeah, Salvador Dali here. We got we have a couple of live steno pads. We're petting. We're, we're you know he's got a uh, submariner's helmet on. And yeah, we're gonna smoke some. Uh, what is that? Pepperidge Farm cookies. We're gonna smoke some Pepperidge Carb. Pepperidge card cookies. Oh, not Pepperidge Farm. Pepperidge card. Is that is that a code name for drugs, Mister Salvador Dali? I, I don't know. I'm on a tangent. I don't know where what what happened. Anyway, dark words, dark wings. Uh, season two, episode season three, episode two. Cult of grief in the open. What does that mean? Oh, I had a question in the opening. Golf. There's a golf of grief. I didn't. I actually. I don't think I looked into that. Maybe I did though. Then we have Bran. He's in the woods with a bow. Three-eyed raven. Three-eyed raven shows up to Bran. Three-eyed raven. Oh, so raven. And uh, there's lots of green. Beautiful, beautiful set of woods Bran's in. He's ready to shoot. And then people start talking to him and say, don't think, just relax. It's John and Rob. They're chattering. They're laughing at him. And then their dad's like, hey, leave it, leave this poor kid alone, Mr. Ned Stark, or, well, Lord Stark. Mr. M- Mr. is not with a, what I would have called him. Lord Stark says, hey, leave him alone. Some kid shows up. He says, hey, you can't kill it. The raven's you. And then you hear Hodor, and Bran wakes up. I think something like that. Then Osha's talking about he's having these black magic dreams. It freaks her out. She's like, let's go. And Rob's talking to his wife, Talissa, and she's talking about how Mother always said you were a grim lot, you northerners. Grim, bearded, stinking barbarians. And then they have a little thing, and then they like get a little, a little lovey-dovey, and who shows up every time these two get, a, get a, into a little romance? Roose Bolton shows up, and he looks very disapproving. He's got a disapproving look on his face now. And he says, oh, pardon me, which is always like a, a, a fake fake politeness. So he could just say, hey, could you guys cut it out? I got some news. But instead, oh, pardon me, my lord. A word from River Run and Winterfell. And it turns out Caitlin, Caitlin's father has died, passed away. And then she he has to tell her that. And then he has to tell her that Bran and Rickon are missing. After that, we got a shot of Theon on a, a, a cross. He's a prisoner, and uh, it's an X-shaped cross as opposed to being a, a T-shaped cross. Then we have Jamie and Brienne walking, and these are very enjoyable scenes with Jamie and Brienne. And Jamie says, oh, how shall we pass the time? And Brienne's like, by putting one foot in front of the other. And then he says, do you think Lady Stark wants to be followed by a giant toe-headed plank? And then Jamie goes to the bathroom, pees. And this is a tradition they have. I guess I never, I can never, I guess this season, episode two, there's always a man going to the bathroom. You know, maybe not a man. When does, the hound goes to the bathroom in front of Arya one season. That's four, I think. Season one is uh, um, Tyrion goes off of the wall. Season two, I know there's some urination in season two. 
I can't be sure who was urinating. Season two, who would have Bron? Um, who would have I don't know. Let me know about that. If you season, you know, hashtag it. Game of piss. No, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry about that. Uh, but he's going to the bathroom, and then uh, he's trying to peg down where he knows. He says, you weren't at Winterfell. I, I would have noticed your giant head smacking into the archways. And she says, shut And then Jamie starts talking about her and Renly. And then he starts getting graphic. But it's humorous. He says, it's a shame the uh, throne wasn't made of cocks. We would have never got him off it. And then Brienne takes exception to that, of course. But Jamie keeps it real. He says, you know, I don't blame him for, for for his dalliances or who you loved. You don't get to choose who you love. And then they run into this peasant guy, and Brienne chooses. He's like, oh, hi, you two. And then Jamie's like, I think that guy recognized me. And Brienne's like, well, no, I've got honor. Let's just let him go. And then we have the classic childhood nightmare scene of a boy getting dressed having to go clothes shopping with his mother, possibly. Maybe for some people it's a... But for Joff, it's like uh, him and Mommy are... He's getting fitted for clothes. But this is his chance to rebel. And so he's like, I don't want any flowers on my clothes. I don't like these clothes. And then he says, uh, he says I'm the king, man. And Cersei's kind of probing him. She says, tell me what you think of her, uh, Marjorie. And he says it's a good match. And so she's like, oh, she's trying to get a feel for how much control is she losing here. And she's kind of, it's a little bit obvious. And he says, this is becoming the most boring conversation, Joff says. And then Joff crosses a line of good decorum, I'd say, or respect. And he says, uh, she did what she was told. That's what intelligent women do. And I guess Cersei's in no longer in a position where she could just smack him a good one, but it's too bad. Then we have Shay and Sansa together, and she says, what did that Baelish want? And she's like, oh, nothing, just, you know. And she says, well, men only want one thing from a pretty girl. And the face Sansa makes, she's like, he is old and gross. And she doesn't say gross, but she says, he's too old. And uh, Shay has a great line. She says, they never think so. Then Sir Loras shows up. He says, a beautiful, uh, how would you like to take the air with my sister and grandmother? Then we meet Lady Olana of the house Tyrell and her flock of foolish hens. And we get we get a couple we get a couple seasons of uh, we we're in for a treat with Lady Olana, Olana, whatever I can pronounce it, but. She's trying to ask Sansa about uh, Joff, and, and she said, "Well, what are you going to do?" And she says, uh, "Well, once the mil- once the cow's been milked, there's no squirting the cream back up the udder. So we we have to see things through." And then she says, "Lemon cakes," and Sansa, "Oh, my favorite." And then she says, "Sit with me. Let's talk. I'm much less boring than the others." And she says, "I want you to tell me the truth about this royal boy." And then servant she said, bring me some cheese. He says, the cheese will be served at lunch. She says, the cheese will be served when I want it. And then it takes a little negotiation. She says, go on, Sansa, speak freely. And she says, he's a monster. And this four seconds after that, I guess including that, 
But the four seconds after she says it are wonderful. She says, oh, that's a pity. And then Marjorie uh, makes this face. She, I think she's eating like a grape or an olive or something. And she makes this face like, oh, that's an interesting flavor. That's too bad. And she tilts her head a bit and she says, hmm, I'm going to have to think about this one. And then the cheese shows up. She says, oh, here comes my cheese. And then we see, I think we see a nice look from Sansa there. Then we're on a march for Rob and Kat to, to her father's funeral. And the car starts like, dude, this is idiotic. What are you doing? We need, we're in a war. And you're going to a funeral. What kind of king of the north are you? King in the north, king of the north, and you're neither. And Rob says, well, what do you, do you think I lost the war? And he says, I think you lost some war, war when you married her. And it's like, this is the first time we're like, oh, boy, Rob's uh, troops. He, he seems like he's losing the respect of his troops. And it's like, oh, when did that start? Or was it his wife or his mother that usurped his authority? Or was it Rob's, you know, choices? And then Cat, uh, Cat, and uh, Talissa are talking. And Kat's, like, criticizing her horse riding to Lissa's. And she says, oh, you're afraid of her. And she knows it. And she says, no, I'm not afraid of the horse. And then they kind of left at that. And she's working. Catelyn's working on another, uh, what was it called, like, dream catcher type thing. And she says, uh, you know, can I help? And she says, only a mother can make them. She says, do they work? She says, after a fashion. And then Kat has a nice uh, monologue. She talks about Jon Snow and being sick. And how she had these prayers to make him, she didn't, she didn't want this bastard child to have to take care of him. So she was hoping that he wouldn't live. Oh, and then he got sick, I think. And then she changed her prayers and she said, you know, let him live, I'll be a mother to him. And he lived. But she says, but I couldn't keep my promise. So all this horror is because I couldn't love a motherless child. And that's a beautiful, tragic moment. And then we have John and Mance talking to two two guys. He says, was it hard for you to kill the half-hand? And John says, yes. And he says, you know what it takes to unite 90 clans? Ones that speak seven different languages. He says, blah, blah, these guys don't like this. And he says, everyone hates the cave people. And so, you know what you, what, what, what you got to do to get moon worshippers? Giants and cannibals on the same page. Common enemy, dude. I told him, you know, if we don't all get south, we're not, none of us are going to make it. Then we meet our first warg, who was the dude from the office, the English office, and then uh, a lot of those pirate movies. And he's seeing through the eyes of a bird or something. And he says, oh, I see uh, the fist. I see a lot of dead crows. And then we see our crows. We see them hiking. We see Sam. We see the mean guy with the beard, the little mean guy. Gren's there. The other guy we like is there, whose name I don't ever remember. And the mean guy says, what's the matter? Is the piggy cold? Lie down and rest. You know you want to. And so Sam says, well, you know, I'm pretty depressed here, and I'm, you know, I'm ready to give up, I think. And then Gren, being a super nice guy, and the other guy come over. They say, hey, get up, man. And he says, you guys don't care about you. You left me behind. And the other guy says, I. 
You're fat and you're slow and we didn't want to die. And then Mormont comes back. He says, Tarly, I forbid you from dying. Now get up. And mean-bearded guy, keep an eye on him. You're responsible for him. Then we're back with Bran. He wakes up. It's like, is he dreaming? Or not, because I was like a wolf in his face, and then Osha and the wolf are kind of on patrol. They go off in the woods. The kid, the boy from the dream, shows up. He's standing there. There's ominous music playing. Wolf's growling. Osha gets a drop on the guy. And the dude's like, oh, my sister's got the drop on you. His sister does have the drop on Osha. He says, "Uh, I'm Jojen. This is my sister, Mira. We've come a long way to find you, Brandon. And then you're like, oh, snap, they know his name. And then another scene, we have Arya and the boys. And it's kind of a little comic relief. They're like uh, arguing about, wait a second, this guy that you were friends with, an assassin, and you didn't tell us, and you didn't give us any wishes? And then the old uh, Aladdin, well, why'd you make such stupid wishes? And then all of a sudden you hear a guy singing the Lannister song, and so it goes... And so it goes, that Lord of Casimir. And then they go and hide, and then an arrow shoots through one of the holes. And the guy singing is like, uh, what's lurking behind that uh, rock or that wall, a lion or a wolf? And Arya pops out, and she's got her sword drawn. He says, you're a dangerous person. I like dangerous people. Again, we get a, a reminder that Arya's a lefty. This guy is... Uh, Cool customer, he seems like, a little bit hilarious. He's a little bit, he's like uh, 33% Jeff Daniels, 33% Jeff Bridges, and 33% William Hurt. I mean, I seriously think that's how they got this guy's DNA. And he says, you know, I'm Therosamir. This is my buddy. I forgot my his name. We're the Brotherhood Without Banners. Almost like I, I just introduced a band, but they're a band of brothers, I guess. And they say, we're just trying to change, you know, save the countryside. Why don't you join us for some brown bread with your friends? And they say, okay, why not? And we have Tyrion and Shay. Shay's in his room. Tyrion's like, what are you doing here? Does anyone see you? She's like, no. And he says, killing you would be the highlight of Father's Week. You can't get found out. She's like, well, Baelish has this friend who warned me about him. And he says, uh, friend, he doesn't have any friends. Are you talking about Roz, the redhead? And she says, what? She's a whore. He says, we shouldn't be judgmental. She's like, you slept with him. He's like, well, slept with her. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, you did. And he's like, yeah, and she, twice. And then she she's, it gets mean. But then she's like, I'm just worried about Sansa. And he says, well, she's going to have plenty of suitors. She's a great beauty. A uh, great beauty, Shay says. He says, well, her face is quite pleasing to other men, to women, to people in general. And then she gets mad again. He says, uh, he tops that hilariousness with, this is cruel and unfair, cruelly unfair. Then we have Joff in his room playing with a crossbow. And Marjorie comes in. She says, uh, he says, I'm leaving on my hunting trip. How how, how are you finding life at the Capitol? And she says, uh, and he says, the bedside of a traitor, is that a good place for you, you to have been? And then Marjorie just plays Joff like a freaking fiddle. Uh, talking about Renly and sex and how tough Joff is. And then it's interesting the lighting in this scene. I don't normally 
have the nuance within me, but I, I thought Joff was almost lit in these like inhuman colors, like greens and reds and yellows. And then uh, Marjorie was, you know, lit like a normal, normal person. And then she's like, show me off your crossbow. And it's all seriously sexual subtext. Seriously sexual subtext. Suddenly, uh, Joff, she says, oh, will you show me how it works? And he says, do you want to hold it? And they're doing it in the mirror. And then there's all this talk of killing. You're like, wait, I thought the subtext was about sex, not about uh, your disturbed uh, other, uh, you know, kinks. And then we're back with Theon. He's kind of being abused. or You know, it's not a pleasant situation. This kid's sweeping up. And then once it only says, hey, I'm gonna, I'm working for your sister. I'm going to come back and rescue you. At the end, it's just like, no, I don't, just please don't leave me alone. I just don't leave me alone here. He says, don't worry, we're going to help you escape. Then we're on the road with Jojen and Bran. And Jojen's like, you're a warg. Did you know that? And he's like, yeah, what about the raven? It's, it's, it's a, he says, oh, the raven's different. That brings the sight. Not just being able to see through animals, but to be able to see the future type stuff. And a couple of paces behind them with Osha and his sister. And Osha's kind of blah, blah, blah. They're arguing back and forth. And she's like, why are you, why are you protecting your brother? He needs to be protected by by you his whole the rest of his life. And she's like, some people will always need help. That doesn't mean they're not worth helping. And then Jojen has a nice line. He says, when I told my father about your father, he cried. And then we're back with the brotherhood and they're drinking and eating and uh, they, some of the guys, they bring in the hound. And Arya's like, oh, we better get out of here then. And she, they, she tries to sneak past the hound, but of course he looks over. And he says, what in the seven hells are you doing with the Stark girl? And everyone's like, whoa, Stark girl, what? And then we have uh, Brienne scouting a bridge, and Jamie's just giving her attitude, nonstop attitude about taking the bridge. Then they start crossing it, and James complaining about his corns. He says, corns? I never used to get corns. And he steals her sword. And then, small spoiler alert, but, I mean, they have this wonderful sword fight, sword fighting scene. A showdown. They size each other up. He said he's still talking, running his mouth. He says, you move well for a great beast of a woman. And then she takes a couple of shots at him. He's still acting like uh, braggadocia. Uh, whatever else you want to call it, uh, bad attitude, I'd call it. He says, you shouldn't grimace before you lunge. And he's still trying to maintain this air of control and invulnerability. And almost like I think Jamie uses his superiority, you know, to dominate people in a way. Uh, but it doesn't work with Brienne. That's a spoiler. She just kind of keeps sizing him up and then she takes him down. And rather easily, I'd say. And then uh, some dudes show up, and Jamie's like, oh, you're the flayed men from the house of Bolton. He says, a little gruesome for my taste. And then they take them prisoner, and that's the uh, end of our episode. Uh, Jamie says to something uh, funny that I thought was just a throwaway line, but it, it caught, of course, caught my interest. He said, uh, hey, corns, I never got corns before. And, and I said, uh Corns, I've heard that word before. Have I ever had a corn? I have no idea. I remember seeing some corn remover on uh, 
Oh, boy, we're about to go down the wormhole, actually. I just remembered something that I had repressed. There was this one time I found corn remover in my house. And I know feet gross people out, so uh, but so maybe I'll just skip the corns and tell you this story. So I found some corn remover, right? And this was maybe, huh, how old was I? I was either 16 or somewhere between first and fourth grade. And I was big into making potions. Probably, I don't know if I was making witchcraft potions or, you know, um, thought I was making, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, like I was a super spy. Maybe I'd watch the Avengers on Nick at Night. I don't know. But I would find things and mix them together. And uh, But not for like, not like a kid making a mud pie. I, I was like trying to make deadly ingredients. So I saw this corner where it had all these warnings on it. That it was dangerous, and I remember opening it, it was, like, very powerful, the smell coming out of it. And it was, like, a gelatinous stuff, and I remember mixing it. I wonder if I did it in, like, a, a, a glass, like, just a, a drinking glass. And I wonder what else is I think I had, like, probably some isopropyl alcohol in there, maybe some hydrogen peroxide. I'm trying to think what other chemicals I could have got my hands on. Probably some nail polish. It smelled a lot like nail polish remover. So I don't know if that was the corns or I'd already put nail polish remover into this. Uh, let's let's hope it was a bottle, but it was probably just a drinking glass. And I remember there was something pink in there, but maybe the corn and there was like the gel, gelatinous stuff of the corn stuff was like floating like a little uh, like a deformed g- gummy bears. Um, and I remember it was very deadly. It was, I think it probably got a couple burns from it because I think it's supposed to burn the corns off you. Definitely got a, caught a buzz off of smelling it. And then I, I was like, I think I got nervous that maybe somebody was coming. And I remember putting it in a medicine cabinet and closing it up and then completely forget it. Like literally, I'm sure my mom flipped or somebody, what is this? Or maybe I poured it in the toilet. I don't know. Um this could have been another phase I had, which, uh, again, this podcast isn't for kids. This isn't explicit or anything, but kids just shouldn't be, you know, privy to this kind of information. Is, uh, you know, when I, you guys know, if you're a regular listener, I didn't do well in school. I had a lot of, I hated school, especially grammar school. But my parents were big on not, you know, missing school unless you were terribly, terribly ill. And so then I cooked up this great um, recipe that I invented. This was, you know, before the Internet. I was probably too young to get on the Internet for fake throw-up. And uh, I could I'd give it to you right now. It would work every time. Now, you couldn't use it very often. Orange juice, peanut butter, milk, and then maybe uh, the center of some white bread. You put that in a jar, you mix it together, and then you pour it in the toilet. And then, because my parents wouldn't, if you said you threw up, they'd be like, no, did you flush the toilet? Yeah, go to school. So you learn not to flush the toilet, which probably makes you look more guilty the second or third time. The first time I remember it worked like a charm. The second time, maybe the first time I just poured something in the toilet. So then the second time I was like, okay, I need a, I need something, you know, some sort of rest, you know, something that's puke-like. So that is like perfect orange juice milk, a little peanut butter, and some bread. And you don't even need the bread. And make sure you get the peanut butter in there a little melted because it looks like some sort of stomach bile or whatever that other stuff is. Um, 
bile. I don't know what else is in there. Um, but yeah, there you go. Pro-Am tip, fake throw up. If So if you get hit by a time machine, sent back into time to, for grammar school as me and you have to live in my house and deal with my issues at school, that's a fake throw up. So you probably only get it good from once or twice. But there you go. Um, actually, let's just look up real quick. What I did the research, so. Uh, understanding corns and calluses, because what is the difference? Corns and calluses can be annoying, but your body actually forms them to protect sensitive skin. Corns and calluses are often confused with one another. Obviously, I'm, I don't even have an idea what a corn is. Uh, corns generally occur on the tops and sides of toes. A hard corn is a pack of patch of th- thick and dead skin with a packed center. A soft corn has a thinner surface and usually occurs between the fourth and fifth toes. A seed corn is a tiny, discreet callus that can be very tender if it's on a... Oh, that must have been what Jamie had. If it's on a weight-bearing part of the foot. Seed corns tend to occur on the bottom of the of feet, and some doctors believe this condition is caused by plugged sweat ducts. So calluses are different. What cause corn and calluses? Some corns and calluses are on the feet from improper walking motion or ill-fitting shoes. High heel shoes are the worst offenders. They put pressure on the toes to make women for Look at this. You're ripping Emma Peeble off for Diana Rigg, and now you're giving her corns on top of it. You st- <sighs> they put pressure on the toes and make women four times as likely as men to have foot problems. Other risk factors uh, include f- misshapen feet, shoes and sandals without socks, uh, so that's corns. I had a just quick thing, and I guess I didn't realize I'd get those personal stories in there. But yeah, that's corns and calluses, folks, and fake throw up and making magic potions. All right, uh, one of the turn, one of the phrases, turns a phrase. Is that what we say? It. Uh, one of the fr- things said in this episode is uh, when uh, Rob's wife Talissa says to Cat, like, "Hey, do those uh, dream catchers work?" She says, "After a fashion." This is another vocabulary thing. I was like, I, I think I know what that means, but let me look it up because I mean, after a fashion, I was like, well, yeah, let me look it up. So I looked it up, and actually, I was a little bit surprised. Uh, so it's good that we learned this. Uh, this is from uh, the freedictionary.com idioms after a fashion, after a fashion in a manner that is just barely adequate, poorly. After a fashion, he thanked me. Oh, he thanked me after a fashion for my help. I don't understand that. Oh, like, you know, oh, yes, I can swim after a fashion. Neither one of those sound very good, actually. A couple more entries. After a fashion, also after a sort. Somehow or other, not very well, as in John can read music after a fashion. That's a good example. Or he managed to paint the house after a sort. The phrase, which in fashion means a manner of doing something has been used since the mid-1800s when it replaced in a fashion. The variant dates from the mid-1500s. Man, George R. R. Martin, you are just, uh, you really do, you really do your job. That's from the American Heritage Dictionary. From the Cambridge Idioms Dictionary, second edition, uh, after a fashion. If you do something after a fashion, you manage to do it, although not very well. I make a podcast after a fashion. <laughs> I, I, I'm a storyteller after, after a fa- 
Is he is a, a scooter a very good storyteller? After after a fashion, yeah, he's a he's a good he's a storyteller after a fashion, after a fashion, yeah, all almost but not completely. Uh, yeah. So that's after a fashion. I just thought it was interesting because the way she said it is exactly how the correct usage. But I think at the time I was like, I, I think I had the sense. Well, they they work after. I was like, uh, I guess I didn't know. So I'm glad I looked it up because it's funnier that way. If you do something, you manage to do it though not very well. I could be describe my entire uh, career as a student. I, you know, magic. Is it, how how is he a student? After a fashion. Yeah, I went to school after a fashion, and uh, I guess I, I'm not even good at giving examples. But anyway, let's move on. All right, so uh, one of the uh, highlights of uh, season three is this new character, Marjorie and Loris Tyrell's grandmother, o- Olana, Olana, Oliana, Olana, who is played by Di- Diana Rigg, and it's just a lovely, lovely character wonderful acting and just uh, finally we have someone that wields their power. I mean, there's always these new people in Game of Thrones and they wield their power in different ways and their influence. And she's wielding hers in a way where you're like, at least in this episode, you're like, wait a second, could this be a new power player? Could this be someone that could um, do things differently than Cersei or Tyrion or Baelish or Tywin and and how is she going to, you know, exert her influence? So it's something to be excited about, but the acting is something to be awed by. And it's by Diana Rick. So I wanted to talk about her a little bit this evening. Now, this is from an interview over at The Guardian, uh, the G2 interview. The quote is, uh, Diana Rick, women of my age are still attractive. Men of my age are not. And it's an uh, interview by Stuart Jeffries from... Uh, Sunday, the 9th of March, 2014, and it comes from The Guardian. Diana Rigg is trying to cross the Fulham Road in London. Elegant from two-toned shoes to circular tinted glasses, she is thwarted by the traffic. Good timing, she says, after I introduce myself, you can help me get across. In the 60s, when she played Emma Peel in The Avengers, a catsuit-wearing rig would have vaulted across car bonnets, and if any male driver had run, remonstrated she would have karate chopped him in the throat and kicked him in the crown jewels, but not today. To my damn tin, knee, tin knees, she says as we link arms and hobble across the street. She had an operation on one of them recently. I had heard that she had damaged her knees with those lengthy tap-dancing routines in the 1987 West End production of Sondheim's Follies. No, it's genetic. My brother, who is 80, has the same problem. Not that the 75-year-old actor is unhappy with her a lot. The older you get, I have to say, the funnier you find life, she said. That's the only way to go. If you get serious about yourself as you get old, you are pathetic. We settled into the garden of a French cafe. A few years ago, Rig would have sought out the garden to indulge her 20-a-day habit. But Dame Diana gave up smoking a couple of years ago and today wants to catch the early spring rays and feed crumbs to the birds. I found myself talking aloud to the pigeons in the park the other day, she tells me. The male pigeons were busily pursuing the female pigeons. I said, you silly farts. Can't you see they're not interested? And then I realized there was people listening to me. 
What applies to birds, she reckons, applies to elderly men and women. I think women of my age are still attractive. She removes her glasses and faces me down with brown eyes that have turned strong men and indeed women to jelly. Men of my age aren't. Why? They've got their cojones halfway to their knees, she says, giggling. They have the same descent as tits. Is there no remedy? Trust, she cackles. That's going to make me a demon with the ladies, I reply bleakly. We are meeting because Rig is soon to be seen in season four of Game of Thrones, reprising her performance as the irascible, bewimpled, bewimpled Lady Olana Tyrell, for which she received her sixth Emmy nomination last year. It is a role that confirms the myth of Rig as an austere, tough, difficult, not for nothing, not for nothing, she has been nicknamed Queen of Thorns for this part. The thorny thesis about Rig was supported by her other recent leading role, that of Winifred Gillyflower, a born-again crackpot chemist and a Doctor Who episode called The Crimson Horror, written especially for her by Mark Gaddis. In that episode, her character had blinded her daughter, played by Rig's real-life daughter, Rachel Sterling, and was bent on killing all life on Earth using prehistoric venom from a red reptile secreted in her bosom. Now, Mr. Sweet, she said before attempting to unleash Armageddon on Victorian Bradford, let the whole world taste your lethal kiss. Both these roles supported the idea that Rig is austere, abrasive, and tough as old boots. They always write about me that way ever since I made a bit of a ruckus about getting paid less than the cameraman on the Avengers. I'm, I'm portrayed as this tough broad, but I'm not. Nor, though, is she a walkover. In 2002, she successfully sued the Daily Mail over a nasty hatchet job that suggested she was a retired recluse, bitter over the collapse of her second man at marriage to theater producer Archibald Sterling after he had an affair with actress Jolie Richardson. They photographed Rig near her French home, clutching a baguette and printed it with the caption, Shopping for One. Retired false, recluse false. True, after two marriages, Rig had not had a live-in lover for many years, but that's not the same thing. I don't know how your guardian readers are going to take this, but I've had a housekeeper for 24 years, so I'm well looked after. I'm a deeply spoiled woman. I make no apologies about it at all. I think they think, oh, poor woman. She's living on her own. Not a bit of it. My bed is turned down every night. But it was the male's claim that she was embittered about her marriage break of 12 years earlier that sung the most. I never said those words. I had sworn not to talk about my marriage breakup, but those words had a terrible effect on me. I read them sobbing, thinking about my marriage. Would she consider remarrying? She doesn't answer the question directly, but she says, I'm very good at living with somebody. I think my ex-husband would accede to this because I tend to please. I come from a generation where my, where my, when my dad arrived and parked a car, my mother would rush upstairs, put some lipstick on, which I think is so charming. I'm wasted living by myself in a sense. Don't please anybody. But, but don't anybody please take that as an invitation to step forward. Her daughter, she says with pride, isn't that kind of pleaser? I remember a few years ago I caught myself asking her, do you make his supper? And she said, certainly not. And I was quite pleased. I, handed, I hadn't handed that on to her. She'd evolved it herself. So is she a feminist? I've always said that feminism is about equal pay, nothing else. This time last year, Rig got much feminist opprobrium 
for telling the Radio Times that women are more bitchy than men and for daring other women to disagree. Today she comes to praise, not bury her gender. We're extremely good at business, getting business done, prioritizing, organizing. Oh boy, classic female qualities. Classic female qualities. She knows, too, that some men find powerful women threatening. She recalls her time as chancellor at Sterling University for a decade until 2008. There was me, a woman principal and a woman director of the Arts Center. An old prof was heard to say, What are we coming to? It still exists. Brig believes she had a very fortunate career. I tell her that when I interviewed Honor Blackman, one of Rig's predecessors as both the fast-handed Avenger and Bond girl, she said her theatrical career had been hobbled because she was contracted to rank films for two vital years at the beginning of her working life. I didn't have that problem. Some weeks I'd spent four days on set of the Avengers then head up to Stratford on Reagan to be Olivier's Lear. While Blackman bemoaned the fact that she was never taken seriously as a classical actor, Rick became just that. Thanks in particular to four roles in which she excelled in the 90s, Medea, Mother Courage, Martha and Albies, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and Fedre and Ted Hughes' adaptation. She burst through the cat suit constraints to become one of our leading tragedians. Tragedians. Comedians. Tragedians. Tragedians. Was she ambitious? Was she ambitious? I asked an old friend that the other day, and he said, Ambitious? No, you're always grateful, she giggles. I can't remember what I was like. You want to remember yourself in a rosier way, sort of romanticize things. But I did do some shit. Really? Oh, yeah. Sharp, sharp shit. Sharp, sharp shit. Such as? Well, that's a lot of asses. Oh, films. Name them. Never. What was the worst thing anyone had said about her? What was that? What? What that ugly Hungarian said? She means she got the review she got from New York Magazine's John Simon when playing Eloise to Keith Mitchell's Abelard on Broadway in 1970. He described her in nude scenes as built like a brick basilica with insufficient flying buttresses. I felt sorry for the audiences who had to see my poor old buttresses, she says. Another actor, Sylvia Miles, whom Simon described as one of those as one of New York's leading party girls and great cra- gate crashers, tipped a plate of antipasto over the critic in a New York restaurant. Rig instead parlayed critical abuse into her 1983 book, No Turn Unstoned, the worst theatrical, worst ever theatrical reviews. In the early 1990s, she toured U.S. campuses reading from her book. At the same time, Margaret Thatcher was touring her memoirs at $250,000 a time. In her fee, a fraction of that. What fraction? She affects not to hear, but she says now she wants to reply, reprise those readings to raise money for her favorite local theaters, such as a routinely acclaimed Finborough, where her daughter is currently playing, starring in Terrence Radigan's Variation on a Theme. We last saw Rig on stage in Pygmalion playing Miss H- Mrs. Higgins opposite Rupert Everett, 37 years after she starred as Eliza Doolittle in the 1974 Albury Theater production of Shaw's Play. Mostly, she says, she, was lo- she would love to act again for the Royal Shakespeare Company, where, after graduating from RADA, 
She began her professional career in 1959. I'm gagging to work, she says. Beneath Riggs' presumed tough carapace is something substantial, an actor with even more to give in her eighth decade. I don't want to retire, she says. I never want to retire. What's the point of it? So that's a little bit about Diana Rigg. Um, so uh, I'll include the uh, Wikipedia entry for Diana Rigg in, in the uh, show notes. But it brings up uh, the TV show she, I guess she broke in on, which was called The Avengers. And I remember seeing the show on like Nick at Night or on a replay somewhere. And I could not wrap my brain around it. I don't know if I was homesick from school or, uh, you know, cutting classes or I was in, you know, I don't know. But I remember seeing the show and I remember I was a big James Bond fan. I've always been, I've always loved Bond movies. And I tried to watch this show. I think I watched a couple of episodes. I think maybe there was one point where I watched a few and I was digging it. But I really have no remembrance other than Diana Reagan and the dude, the other dude. So I thought we'd read up on it and then maybe I'll look up where it is out there and see it. And is this uh, re- I remember it was like I could really hard. It was really old. But I was like, is this – it was tough for me to place. I was like in some sense I was like, is this so timeless? Like I can't place where this was made. And then, of course, we had – I don't know if it will say it in Wikipedia, but it's like how much did – um Mike Myers movie, uh, Austin Powers O to the Avengers, I think a whole lot. So let's read about the Avengers just on Wikipedia. And then if anybody has any Avengers related experiences or knows where we can stream it or if it's worth streaming, uh, you know, let me know. All right. So the Avengers, a TV series, Avengers is a spy fi uh, British television series created in the 1960s, initially focused on Dr. David Keel, played by Ian Hendry, and his assistant John Steed, by, played by Patrick McNee. Hendry left after the first season and Steed became the main character, partnered with a succession of assistants. Steed's most famous assistants were intelligent, stylish, and assertive women. Kathy Gale, played by Honor Blackman, Emma Peel, played by Diana Rigg, and later Tara King, played by Linda Thorson. Later episodes increasingly incorporated elements of science fiction, fantasy, parody, and British eccentricity. The Avengers ran from 1961 until 1969, screening as one-hour episodes its entire run. The pilot episode, Hot Snow, aired on 7th of January, 1961. The final episode, Bizarre, aired on the 21st of May, 1969. Uh, the Avengers was produced by the Associated British Corporation, a contractor within the ITV network. After a merger in July 1968, ABC Television became Thames Television, which continued production of the series, although it was still broadcast under the ABC name. By 1969, The Avengers was shown in more than 90 countries. ITV produced a sequel, The New Avengers, with Patrick McNee returning as John Steed and two new partners. In 2007, The Avengers was ranked number 20th on TV Guide's top cult shows ever. The Avengers was marked by different eras as co-stars came and went. The The only constant was John Steed, played by Patrick McNee. There's an entry about this first season in 61, which we'll skip. And the uh, 
1962-1964 with Kathy Gale, Honor Blackman, uh, Venus Smith, played by Julie Stevens, and Mar- Dr. Martin King, played by John Rollison. We're going to skip straight ahead uh, to a little thing called series transformation. During the Gale era, Steed was transformed from a rugged trench coat-wearing agent into the stereotypical English de- gentleman. He'd first ta- donned the bowler and carried his distinctive an umbrella partway through the first season as the Frighteners depicts, complete with Seville Row suit, revol- complete with Seville Row suit, bowler hat, and umbrella with clothes later designed by Pierre Cardin. Uh, bowler and umbrella were soon changed to be full of tricks, including a sword hidden within the umbrella handle and a steel plate concealed in the hat. These items were referred to in the French, German, and Polish titles of Chapeau, Melon, Et Bottles de Sur, Mitchrim, and Charmin Melon, with Umbrella Charm and Bowler Hat, and Reloller e Melonic, a revolver and a bowler hat, respectively. With his impeccable manner, manners, old-world sophistication, and vintage automobiles, Steed came to represent the traditional Englishman of an earlier era. By contrast, his partners were youthful, forward-looking, and always dressed in the latest mod fashions. Gail's innovative leather outfit suited her many athletic flight scenes. Honor Blackman became a star in Britain with her black leather outfits and boots, nicknamed Kinky Boots, and her judo-based fighting style. She also carried a pistol in Killer Whale. McNee and Blackman even released a novelty song called Kinky Boots. Some of the clothes seen in the Avengers were designed by the studio of John Sutcliffe, who produced the Adam Age Fanish magazine. Series scriptwriter Dennis Spooner said the series would frequently feature Steve visiting busy public places such as the main airport in London without anyone else present in the scene. Can't you afford extras, they'd ask? Well, it wasn't like that. It's just Steed, Steed had to be alone to be accepted. Put him in a crowd and he sticks out like a sore thumb. Let's face it, with normal people, he's weird. The trick to making him acceptable is never to show him in the normal world, just fighting villains who are odder than he is. 1965 to 1968 with Emma Peel, Diana Rigg. In 1965, the show was sold to United States Network, ABC, American Broadcasting Company. The Avengers came one of the British, first British series to be aired primetime on U.S. television. The ABC network paid the then-unheard-of sum of $2 million for the first 26 episodes. The average budget for each episode was fixed 56,000 pounds, which was high for the British industry. The four series aired in the U.S. from March to December 1966. Previously, the Avengers had been shot on 405-line videotape using a multi-camera setup with little provision for editing and virtually no location footage. The U.S. deal meant the producers could start to shoot the series on 35mm film. The use of film rather than videotape was essential as British 405 line video is technically incompatible with the U.S. NTSC videotape format. Film productions were standard on U.S. primetime television at the time. The Avengers continued to be produced in black and white. The transfer to film at the episodes would be shot using a single-camera setup, giving the production greater flexibility. The use of film production and single-camera production style allowed for more sophisticated visuals and camera angles and more outdoor location shots, all of which greatly improved the look of the series. As was standard on British television, film 
production through the 60s. All location work on Series 4 was shot mute with a soundtrack created in post-production. Dialogue scenes were filmed in studio, leading to some jumps between location and studio footage. New female partner, Mrs. Emma Peel, Diana Rigg, debuted in the series in October 1965. The name of that character, the name of the character, derived from a comment by writers during development that they wanted a character with man appeal. In an early attempt to incorporate this concept into the character's name, she was called Samantha Peel, and then shortened the awkward Mantha Peel. Eventually, the writers began referring to the idea by the verbal shorthand M appeal, M period appeal, which gave rise to the character's also ultimate name, M appeal whose husband went missing while flying over the Amazon. She retained the uh, self-assuredness of Gal, combined with superior fighting skills and intelligence in a contemporary fashion sense. After more than 60 actresses had been auditioned, the first choice to play the role was Elizabeth Shepard. However, after making one and a half episodes, the pilot, Shepard, was released. Her on-screen personality was deemed less interesting than that of Blackman's gal, and it was decided she was not right for the role. Another 20 actresses were auditioned before the show's casting director suggested that producers Brian Clemens and Albert Fennell check out a televised drama featuring the relatively unknown rig. Her screen test with McNee showed the two immediately worked well together and a new era in the Avengers history began, or Avengers, no, sorry. A prologue was added to the beginning of all fourth season episodes for the American transmissions. This was to clarify some initial confusion audience had, had regarding the characters and their missions. In the opener, a waiter holding a champagne bottle falls dead onto a human-sized chessboard, a dagger protruding from a target on his back, Steed and Mrs. Peel, dressed in her trademark leather catsuit, walk up to the body as a voiceover explains, Extraordinary crimes against the people of the state have to be avenged by agents extraordinary. Two such people are John Steed, top professional, and his assistant and his partner, Emma Two such people are John Steed, top professional, and his partner Emma Peel, talented amateur, otherwise known as the Avengers. During this voiceover, Steed pours two drinks from a wine bottle, and Mrs. Peel replaces her gun in her boot. They clink glasses and depart together, fade to black, and the opening titles begin. In contrast to the Gale episodes, there's a lighter comic touch in Steed and Peel's interactions with each other and their reactions to other characters and situations. Earlier series had a harder tone with the Gale era, including some serious espionage dramas. This also almost completely disappeared as Steed and Peel visibly enjoyed topping each other's witticisms. The layer of conflict with Gale, whom on occasion openly resented being used by Steed, often without her permission, is absent from Steed's interaction with Peel. Also, the sexual tension between Steed and Gale is quite different between Steed and Peel. In both cases, the exact relationship between the partners is left ambiguous although they seem to have carte blanche to visit each other's homes whenever they please, and it is not uncommon for, for scenes to suggest Steed had spent the night at Gale or Peel's home or vice versa, although nothing improper is displayed. The obviously much closer chemistry between Steed and Peel constantly suggests intimacy between the two.
Science fiction elements, later known as spy-fi, began to emerge in stories. The duo to encounter killer robots. Wow, that sounds telepaths. And a giant alien carnivorous plant. In their fourth episode, Death at Bargain Prices, Mrs. Peel takes an undercover job at a department store. Her uniform for promoting space-age toys is a elaborate cat suit plus silver boots and welder's gloves. The suit, minus silver accessories, becomes her signature outfit she wore primarily for fight scenes in earlier episodes and in the titles. Some episodes contain a fetishistic, fetishistic, fetishistic undercurrent. In a touch of brimstone, Miss Peel dresses in a dominatrix outfit of corset, lace boots, and spiked collar to become the queen of sin. Peel's avant-garde fashions featuring bold accents and high-contrast geometric patterns emphasize her youthful contemporary personality. She represents the modern England of the 60s just as Steed, with his vintage style and mannerisms, personifies, personifies Edwardian-era nostalgia. According to McNee in his book, The Avengers and Me, Rick disliked wearing leather and insisted on a new line of fabric wear for the fifth series. Alan Hughes, who designed clothing for Diana Rigg's personal wardrobe, was suggested by the actress to design Emma Peel's softer new wardrobe. Pierre Cardin was brought in to design a new wardrobe for McNee. In America, TV Guide ran a four-page photo spread on Rigg's new Emma Peeler outfits. Eight tight-fitting jumpsuits and a variety of bright colors were used, were created using the stretch fabric crimpoline. Another memorable feature of the show from this point onwards was automobiles. Steed's signature cars were vintage 1926. Steed's signature cars were vintage 1926 to 1928. Bentley ta- racing or town cars, including blower Bentleys and Bentley Speed Sixes. Peel wrote, drove a sporty Lotus Elan convertible, which, like her clothes, emphasized her. Per- in, who wrote this? An ad agency emphasized her independence and vitality. During the first Peel series, each episode ended with a short comedic scene of the duo leaving the scene. And they put they always do that uh, of their most recent adventure in some unusual vehicle. There's a lot more about the fifth series, Riggs' departure. Riggs uh, was initially unhappy with the way she was treated by the show's producers. During her first series, she learned she was being paid less than the cameraman. She demanded a raise to put her more on par with her co-star, or she would leave the show. The producers gave in, thanks to the show's great popularity in the U.S., at the end of the fifth series, Rig left to pursue other projects. That included following Honor Blackman to play a leading role in a James Bond film, in this case, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Rig and McNee have remained lifelong friends. Production team, here's interesting. Sidney Newman, who would later go on to spearhead the creation of Doctor Who for the BBC, never received screen credit as the creator of The Avengers. In his memoir, The Avengers and Me, Patrick McNee interviewed Newman about this. Newman explained that he never sought on-screen credit for the series because his previous tenure at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, such credits were not given, and he never thought to get one for The Avengers. There's a lot more about it. If you guys want to read more, it'll be in the show notes, but that's The Avengers. I might actually try to find... I don't know. I'll see if there's a place we can stream this. I'd like to check out some of these episodes, actually.
All right, so that's the Avengers. Diana Rigg, one of the stars. Main stars, uh, producers. Uh, lemon cakes were mentioned by uh, Sansa. Sansa. Lemon cakes were mentioned by Sansa, and then I started looking them up, and I got distracted because I found this. Because um, uh, I found this article: um, How to Make a Lemon Pound Loaf. Over on StarPlanet.com, S-T-A-R-R Planet.com, Vintage Girl, G-R-R-L, in a Modern World. And I believe uh, Starlot is uh, spun by Caroline Moore. And this is from July 11, 2013. And I'm actually going to make this once I get the rest of the uh, all the items. But it's Starbucks Lemon Pound Loaf Bread Machine Recipe. And this is a quoting from the... Quoting from it, I'm in love with Starbucks lemon pound cake, and for good reason, it's the best I've ever had until I made my own, that is. After many adjustments to the recipe, I found the perfect combination for a rich, lemony, buttery pound cake in less than two hours. Note this recipe can be used with any bread machine. Please add the ingredients in the order they are written. If 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 you don't have a bread machine, you can just Google something. Uh, half here's the ingredients: half cup of vegetable oil, three tablespoons softened butter, three eggs, one teaspoon vanilla extract, one teaspoon lemon extract. That's what I have to buy. Third cup lemon juice, half a teaspoon salt, one cup sugar, one and a half cups flour, half teaspoon baking soda, half teaspoon baking powder. I'm actually low on baking powder too. Add the ingredients in the order listed. Select the settings for quick breads on your machine. While the loaf is baking, prepare the glaze. Ingredients for the glaze, one cup powdered sugar, two teaspoons milk, oh, two tablespoons milk, and a half teaspoon lemon extract. Combine the ingredients set aside. Once the loaf is finished, immediately add the glaze for a thin layer of sweetness or wait until the loaf is cooled. For a thicker, richer taste, enjoy. So that's a little bit of a pound cake. I think there's a song, Pound Cake. But I'll hear my lemon pound cake. Be my lemon pound cake. Bada ba bake. You in a bread machine. Uh. Uh, but I'm definitely going to make that once I get a hold of some lemon extract. Uh, which isn't a, you got to, I think you can probably buy it at some supermarkets, but I got to track that down. All right, let's move on. Well, one thing that came up this episode was with Bran in the woods with his bow and he's walking. And then the archer from the band, the Brotherhood Without Border, Border Brotherhood Without Banners. He's made me think of the book Zen and the Archery, which I think I read at some point. Don't I remember the cover of it. But that might be because of I'd seen it recently. So I decided to do some research, and I found two conflicting viewpoints that I'm going to try to read a little bit from. The first one is uh, from the first I found on uh, uh, iks.kyudo.org.uk content documents. Zen and the Art of Archery, a practitioner's view. This is from a talk given at the Buddhist Society in London 2003. I don't see an author, unfortunately, but let's just read through it. In the 1920s, a German academic, Eugen Harigel, 
H-E-R-R-I-G-E-L, went to Japan in search of the Zen experience. He had studied theology and then philosophy at Heidelberg University and through his interest in Christian mysticism, parentheses Eckhart, he became interested in Zen, which he thought was one of the most mythical of religions. He wanted to find a way of directly experiencing living Buddhism, which he understood could be found in the practice of Zen Buddhism. He was advised that as a foreigner without any language ability in Japanese, he would be better of if he first of all studied an art form, Gaido, that was related to Zen and through that to gradually find a relationship with Zen Buddhism. On this recommendation, he took up the practice of K-Y-U-D-O, Kaido, Kudo, uh, the way of the Japanese bow, and wrote about his experiences in his now famous book, Zen and the Art of Archery. With the publication of an English language edition, with the publication of an English language edition in 1956, further publications followed in many languages, including Japanese. This book helped to popularize an interest in Zen and archery, and the notion that they are some way intimately connected. Harry Harry, Harry Gell took up his uh, archery training under Master Kenzo Awa who came from the Japanese archery tradition that evolved historically from two main lineages, the warrior tradition, Ushiki, that used the bow as a weapon of war, and the ceremonial tradition, Reishiki, with its em- emphasis with it, with its emphasis on the ritualized shooting form. When the bow became obsolete in its use as a weapon, it continued to be used for competition and ritual ceremony, and eventually became a way for moral and spiritual training. Al was considered an expert and was well-known for his accuracy and being capable of it. It was reported, H-Y-A-P-P-A-T-S-U, Hipatsu Hikachu, 100 shots, 100 hits. And in his earlier period as an instructor, emphasized the accuracy of hitting, but at a certain point in his career, he is purported to have had doubts about his shooting and about Japanese archery as an excellence, as just excellence in technique. He adopted the view, Nani mo irenu, nothing is needed, and that practice goes beyond technique and that there is a need for the deepest effort to create a spiritual release with absolute effort. Isha Zetsume one shot, one life. It would seem that Awa had some insight or awakening in his own practice upon which this was founded. Awa's Kaiyudo became more of a spiritual way, almost to the extent of being considered as a religion by some of his critics. At the time, the founder of Judo, Jigoro Kano, created the concept of judo as opposed to the purely technical jiu-jitsu, and kaiyudo was evolving in the place of kujitsu as a way of moral training and cultivating the character. Awa's creation of his own school of the great shooting way, daishado, reflected the shift of focus but to his own extreme of spiritual intention. Kayudo practitioners at the time considered Awa as unorthodox, if not eccentric. 
There may have even been some who thought he was mad. He definitely did not represent the mainstream of Kyoto. It is also not clear as his relationship to Zen practice. He had a brother student who had undergone training with together in the Zen master Yume G. Roshi, who was also considered unconventional as teaching of Kyudo and used Zen approaches in his teaching method. It is known, it is known, uh, that he was greatly admired by Awa, and they trained together even after they had established their own training practices, dojo. But it seems that Awa never really actually formally adopted Zen training or practiced sitting meditation, Zazen. His approach was most definitely about using the vehicle of Kyudo as a way of a transcendental experience, and he used Zen concepts and terminology to illustrate this. But this is as far as the connection seems to have gone. For Harajel, in his own quest for insight through Zen practice, Awa was custom-made. He must have fitted completely with Harajel's romantic notion of the mysterious and mythical master. As we mentioned earlier, Harajel did not speak or understand Japanese, and this lack of communication would not have helped Harajel to understood the would not have helped Harajel to understood that Awa never ever considered himself a proponent of Zen, or that Kyudo and Zen are in some ways synonymous. It would seem that Harajel constructed his own interpretation of his experiences with Awa to enforce his own romantic view of Kyudo as a form of Zen practice. Let's read one more paragraph here. One example of this can be found in Harajel's book in which he asks Awa, what you need, which she asked Awa what you needed to do to hit the target. Awa is reported to have said that you do not need to think about hitting the target. You do not need to aim at it. Harajel challenged this by declaring that if you do not aim at the target, you cannot hit it. Awa ordered Harajel to come to the practice hall that evening in the semi-darkness. He placed a stick of incense in front of the target so only the light of the incense stick was visible. The target butts are 28 meters from the shooting line in a standard shooting situation. Awa shot his first arrow and it was heard hitting the target. Then he shot his second arrow, which also hit. It would seem that the first arrow hit the center of the target and the second arrow split through the shaft of the first to embed itself beside it. Harajel declares in his book that Awa said that through experience it is acceptable that the first arrow hit, but the second arrow was evidence of the shooting without self and that this shot was not created by him, and as if something mysterious had taken place. Harajel says in the packet, pa- Harajel says in the pack, Harajel says in the passage that relates to the incident that Awa said, it shot, and it made the hit. Let us bow to the goal as before Buddha. So if you're interested in that, I'll have that in the show notes. And then there's also this other article. Uh, from the Japanese Journal of Religious Studies, 2001, The Myth of Zen and the Art of Archery by Yamada Soji, S-H-O-J-I. Eugen's Harajel, Zen and the Art of Archery, has, wa- has been widely read as a study of Japanese culture. By reconsidering and reorganizing Harajel's text, text and related materials, however, this paper clarifies the mythical nature of Zen and the Art of Archery and the process by which this myth has been generated. This paper first gives a brief history of Japanese archery and places 
the period at which Harajal studied Japanese archery within the time frame. Next, it summarizes the life of Harajal's teacher, Awa Kenzo. At the time Harajal began learning the skill, Awa was just beginning to formulate his own unique ideas based on personal spiritual experiences. Awa himself had no experience in Zen, nor did he unconditionally approve of Zen. By contrast, Harajal came to Japan in search of Zen and chose Japanese archery as a method through which to approach it. The paper goes on to critically analyze two important as spiritual episodes in Zen of the Art of Archery. What becomes clear through this analysis is a serious language barrier existing between Awa and Harajal. The testimony of the interpreter as well as other evidence supports the fact that the complex spiritual episodes related in the book occurred earlier when there was no interpreter present or were misinterpreted by Harajal via the interpreter's intentionally liberal translations. translations. Added to this phenomenon of misunderstanding, whether only coincidental or born out of mistaken interpretation, was the personal desire of Harajal to pursue things gen. Out of the above circumstances was born the myth of Zen and the art of archery. So that'd be another uh, long, it's a 30-page journal article if you want to dig even deeper. Uh, so that's a little bit about Zen and the art of archery. Turns out it's uh, the art of uh, Zen, not the uh, archery, and the art of I don't know if I was, uh, yeah, I don't know, but yeah, it'll be in the show notes. Zen and the Art of Show Notes. Hello, hello, no, Tommy, uh, you can't, hello, hello, what's the matter, is there something wrong with the eels on my ears? No, Tommy, we need to talk, I gotta make sure that you understand what I've been explaining to you, answer pounds. Well, no, oh, hello, hello, uh, no, Tommen, you're like a you're like a dog with your. Well, I am not a dog. I am a serpent. I'm I'm Tommen. I, okay, Tommen. I'm sorry. Maybe I explained it the wrong way. Can you just explain to me? If you understand it, can you tell it to me in story? Here's what I try. Tell it to me in a story. Here's what I need. A story, an imaginative story that does not take place in West and only in an imaginary place. If you want me to keep coming here and sneaking into your room at night when you're alone in your bed clothes, uh, into, you know, pretend, you know, fic, you're sneaking. No sneaking. There's no sneaking, right? I just need you. You're fiction. You're making up fictional stories and sending them to me. It, and they just happen to be MP3. Okay, can you repeat what you want? Okay, okay. Hello, everyone. This is Tommen, Prince Tommen, King Tom, uh, Prince Tommen, Lord Tommen. Uh, but you probably know me as the boy, the boy who's about to become a man one day soon, who is best friends with Sir Pounce, the greatest cat ever to walk the king kingdoms. Uh, right, right, uh, lands, seas, uh, and through adventures, the likes of which many people have never known. Now, there's an update on the adventure. Now, you might say, who, well, you said, is Sir, Sir, your Sir Pounce's best friend or Sir Pounce's your both? 
I am the best friend of Sir Pounce, and Sir Pounce is the best friend of Tommen. Now there's a lot of things that say, you know, Tommen does not understand about parenting in, in general, or motherhood, or, or kindness. Uh, like, why is it so hard to be kind? Is a question, you know, why do you not want to hold a boy? Those are questions that are asked in a general way. And people might say, well, that Tom, and he's a buffoon. He's a, he's a, uh, he's a crier. A crier who turns blue, who won't stop crying. There's, you know, something terribly wrong with that boy. And then you may, you may hear that said by people who make Tom and cry or who ignore him while he cries, or who pester him while he cries. In a general way, if there was a boy named Tommen who cried, but it's just because someone cries and cries, and then cries a little more, and then wheezes, weeps, wheezes some more, uh, can't catch his breath, um, falls asleep, wakes up screaming, those types of things, just because a boy does that. One does not mean he's not a good friend. Of course, we know that in theory of this. I understand what theory is, sir. And a boy like that, maybe that's a boy who has a greater understanding of imagination than the world, you know, who's turned his back to the world because the world has turned his back to him. But he didn't turn his back. He said, well, this is very confusing to me. I better pull over the covers. So, you know, a man might come to Tommen and say, well, we've had a great time hearing about Sir Pounce and his adventures, places known, previously known. But to be honest, is, uh, this man, he may be a man of honor, you know, coming into Tommen's room. When Tommen is, you know, just a boy's room alone, sitting on his bed with him and saying, putting strange things on his ears. And, but, but he may be a nice enough man. I don't understand. He just he says, and then he says he's got to go. But he may have heard of many tales of Sir Pounce in a place many people have heard of. But this man, he says he has honor. And he must honor the wishes of the man. This was where it got confusing for me. You say the man made a fiction, fiction. I, I And now I've had this before. I'm talking to the man, of course, that's in my room. Uh, Pooter, Wooter, he's a, well, dearest Wooter. Anyway, he's a comedy, you see. And before, I just want to be clear. We've talked about many things, but he, I want to be clear, you know. Many people say, oh, you know, it's you and that cat is very weird or... What is wrong with you? Don't talk to the cat. The cat can't be Sir Pounce. Oh, just let the boy have his cat. He's so silly. Just he let him have his one thing. The cat isn't real. The cat does not have adventures. He's not sure you can't be best friends with a cat. Everyone tells and I just want to make sure this is not the case, that you're saying fiction, a story like I've been told as a boy. And clearly, you you and I, right, you're shaking your head up and down. That means yes here, well, in a place, a general way, uh, that Sir Pounce is real. His adventures are real. And his best friendship 
with dominance and pounces beyond real. It is super real. Super, it's not supernatural like a ghost because we are both alive with a friendship that is living in a way that is so much more alive than people that aren't alive. Our friendship is like a a weed growing everywhere, but just between me and Sir Pounce. Is that, am I clear enough? Um, I don't Clear? Okay, so you know Sir Pounce is real. Just say that. Sir Pounce is real. And hold your hand up like you're swearing to, and bow, bow down. Okay. I do solemnly swear. I, I do solemnly swear that despite the fact you are you're saying this is all a fictional universe you do not belong in, that despite the fact that this is a fictional universe I do not belong in, and despite the fact that you say you love me and Sir Pounce, you know, you said as a, just a, as a, a fan, and despite the fact I love you and Sir Pounce as a fan, uh, and because of that heretofore, and because of heretofore, uh, you're smiling at me like you're about to, don't say it, repeat that, um, Heretofore, I do solemnly swear. I do solemnly swear. Sir Pounce is real. Sir Pounce is real. As real as the friendship that lives in my heart like a fire. As real as the friendship that lives in your your heart. Yeah, my heart. Your heart is a fire. I will never deny Sir Pounce is the best friend of Tommen or Tommen is the best friend of Sir Pounce because they are not fictional. The friendship is, a, is, is, if anything, a legend beyond legends. I don't know what to say. Uh, Sir Pounce and friendship, Tommen's friendship is real and legend beyond legend. Sir Pounce and Tommen's friendship is real and a legend beyond legends. And I don't know what to say. How about, can I finish up, Tom? Uh, you may. And that their friendship will live on in history. And this heretofore, hence forward going, is but a retelling of the legendary legends of the legendary friendship of Sir Pounce and Tom and the two, the friends that put the friendship in, and the ship, in, the ship that took friends. And the friends that took a ship because they're the best friends greater than the sea and ships and worlds because their friendship transferred worlds because it is so powerful that we only want to hear tales of the wit as witnesses to their adventures because we are so utterly awed by the wonderfulness of their friendship. The best friends, the best friendship, people that had friends or could have friends could ever dream of just hearing about as a legend. The tales of Sir Pounce and Tom and the two best friends friendship has ever known. And we, we were honored to just hear those tales, you know, into our world. Uh, hence, therefore, very, you were very good at swearing an oath. So that, okay, go move move away from me. Yeah, move over there. Mother says, sacred space, sacred space. Mother says, never let a holy man within your sacred space. Do you understand? 
Yeah, Tom, I'm not, I don't want to interested in your sacred space. Your sacred friendship is all. Oh, you still. So, my friends uh, who are listening, and uh, so you've heard the oath been sworn. Sir Pounce is real. My friendship with Sir Pounce is real. And soon, and when I say soon, I mean the next time you, you the wind carries a tail onto your ears through this M3s, M3s, from the your phones, the electric eels, I still don't, I don't understand. I'm glad they do not shock me. But when the eel phones bring you this tale, it will be across universes. A tale of friendship, a tale of adventure, of course, Sir Pounce. Always adventuring and Sir, Sir Tommen, hoping against hope that everything will be okay with Sir Pounce. Will, will Tom and be on the adventure? Sometimes, maybe. But these will be adventures. Imagination will be the, the adventure that calls them. But the friendship will be as non-fictional as, uh, you know, uh, the old gods and the new, uh, particularly the gods uh, Mother says I need to believe in. Those gods... Uh, they would worship on the altar of friendship if they could to Salmon and Sir Pounce. How, how's that? Uh, that's great, Tom. And uh, Tom, can I ask you one question? Uh, you, you, is it part of your oath or about uh, me, me and Sir Pounce? Sir Pounce is real. I, there's no way I'm going to help you. No, I know, Tom, don't worry. Sir Pounce is right here sitting with it. I mean, you know, out in a room... In, uh, in you know place in, in America, America, America ah, sounds like a land of pirates and people that just take what they want when they want it. Yeah, kind of. And they just you you know they're like pirates. They just say, hey, "This is mine. Get out of my way." Our America. I, I like I well, I don't actually well, I do not have any urge to go there. Well, you're here. You're, oh, oh, yes, of course I am. Well, what was your question then? Well, I just had a question. Oh shoot, I forgot it. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, yes, I forgot his question. A little nervous being around me, huh? And so pounce. You could say that. I mean, but I think you, if you said it, you wouldn't understand it. Well, anyway, what was your question? Well, um, when you uh, tell this hails of Sir Pounce, Brave Sir Pounce and Sir Tom and the best friends friends I've ever known, uh, I like how you said that, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, you your eyes, you, you kind of go, do you go? So I'm just trying to figure out because you close your eyes and you get this look on your face, a good, you know, uh, and you're just wondering where, what, what happens, because your eyes kind of quiver, your eyeballs. And it's just wondering, oh, you're saying what happens when I tell the tale of Brave Sir Pounce? The, the, the bravest, you know, the cat to put brave, brave, brave and bravery, bravery and braveness. I go, I, I relive the tale as if I was there, because Sir Pounce is such a storyteller. Look at him lying there. He, he does like you. He's looking at you. Yeah, well, I'm I'm allergic to cats, Simon, so I can't uh, just pet him. Just pet him. Uh, I'm I'm always afraid if I pet him, I'll just oh, he swiped at you. He's that means he likes you. Uh, are you sure, Tommy? Because uh, that's the kind of look they give. They give you that look. 
I just pr- prefer if he, you know, if he wants to rub against me, that's, and then I'll pet him once I know he's not. Okay, well, anyway, your quest, I go on the, the quest because Sopans tells me the tale. He paints a picture in my mind that is so, uh, has a depth because of our friendship, of our bond, of the supernatural, I think I may have said. And I say some stuff probably my mother would say I was blasphemous, but anyway, you know, I, I am, if I am not with Sopans, I am with him because of our friendship. I could be there at his side. Even when I am not, is that clear? It's crystal, crystal clear, Tom. Okay, so uh, get these. I'm going to take the heels off, everybody. Thank you for your time. So, so do not worry. This man, he was he. I, can I tell the truth now? Yeah, go ahead, Tom. The man that swore an oath to me, he he cried, and cried. He said, "Oh, Tom and Tom and." Uh, well, first I said, "I do not think I want you back in my room." Should I call the guards? And I, he said, uh, no, because then I'll end up like the, uh, I heard about what you and, oh, because you wanted to yell at me. That's right about what happened with the, uh, what did happen? You were calling me and uh, Sir Pounce Royals. And then, oh, because you, you said Royals, Royals. Uh, oh, now you're, now you're, now you're not. A, and then you started crying. He was crying. He said, oh, Tom, and I need you back. I'm sorry I called you Royal Sabounce. I'm sorry. I can't do it without you guys. The fans love Tom, Sir Pounce, Tom and, and Sir Pounce. That's what you said when you were crying. Yeah, you're right, Tom. You're right. I'm just so lucky that I swore that oath to you. You honor me with your ability to take on an oath of truth about your friendship with Sir Pounce. It's my honor. Okay, so he's honored. I'm honored to be telling it to you and to even him. He's not a bad man. Believe me, I've had to deal with my share of bad men in my life. But this is Tom and Sir Pounce. Pounce is now in my lap. He's laughing at you. To the, not you, people listening, but the, the boy man here. So that's it. We'll be back soon with an adventure on the lands of imagination. Tom and Sir Pounce. Characters that are similar... Right, that's what you told me to say. Inspired, but not fan fiction, but a fiction by a fan who could not let go of. Oh, he says we'll talk. Thank you, and good, good, good evening. Uh, time for my prayers. Crone, sweet, sweet crone, Miller Smith, Barky, Jester, gods of the you know that I pray to from planet Earth. Gods of um, so many worlds, the endless worlds of uh, the unknowing of my human mind that could never understand, the limitlessness, well, I guess there's a limit, the limit like, unlimited, the kind of power that would create more than one God to do. Stuff that a god I was raised with could do on its own. But maybe you're all of one and one of all. Or maybe, I think maybe once in another universe we're just faces on one, many sides of one face. But to me, you know, I'm polytheist, poly, polytheistic now, gods, and I'm praying to you. Or I'm learning my way and understanding 
my doubtful heart, uh, overcoming that. Now that I'm, now that I'm only praying to you from earth. Though you may have touched other worlds, both real and unreal, parallel universes, multiverses, transverses, uh, purses, you, you know, terse, terse people. Anyway, guys, I'm praying in. Crone, sweet, sweet, crone. Miller Smith Barkey, I said that. Jester. Um, would you, how would you guys think of the movie last night? Uh, yeah, I thought, you know, I, I, I said a silent, I said, hey, guys, movies coming on. We're going to watch, go to the movies. Okay, come on. And then, um, I thought I'd review it, but a couple of things about movies and TV gods is spoiler alerts. You you never know when someone's going to go see something and you don't want to ruin it for them. So I can say spoiler alert for the movie Whiplash. But I'm trying to keep it low on the spoilers, gods, in case. Chrome, were you awake for the whole thing? And one, two, does the drum playing bother you? Did you like lean out your window? Your are you in a cloud castle? I don't know. I picture you. Well, do I picture you in a cloud castle? Sometimes I guess. Did you lean out your cloud castle window and say, "Hey, quiet it down with the banging"? Where did you enjoy the tale, Miller Smith, Arky, Jester? What did you think about it? Um, was it maybe there was a tale of a boy uh, or a man, young man or a boy right on the precipice of manhood and, and his journey or just crossed over the precipice into manhood and then said, hey, whoa, this is a, actually I'm now I'm on a precipice. I didn't realize that crossing into manhood. I thought that was a precipice. Now I'm on a precipice and I don't know what to do. I'm looking forward. And it seems like an endlessness in front of me with a big fall. But I can also see in the distance a cloud castle. Metaphorically, that is so, looks so wonderful. And I'd like to be there uh, in this castle where everybody looks up to and says, Wow, that is a castle made of clouds. Um, like a double rainbow, but better. And uh, and I think they said double rainbow in the movie. God, oh boy, uh, Barky, you would love the double rainbow. Have you got on YouTube yet, Barky? Because I've been leaving the computer on. And um, you know, good. Now that you're in my world, you can do whatever you want. Uh, well, within reason. But anyway, double rainbow is like this YouTube video. The guy is old one. We got oh double rainbow. It's just funny. He loves double rainbows, this guy, and we love listening to him love the double rainbows. Your microphone's popping, gods. I don't know if you're doing that to tell me something, but um, so, uh, or hopefully there's not water spilling in here. Um, sorry, gods, I didn't mean a deep prayer there. So then the boy, man, his name was Andrew, ironically enough, played Miles Teller is the name. That's one of my favorite cousins. The name is Miles and then the Miles Teller actually looks like my another one of my favorite cousins, husbands, my, who listens to this podcast, cousin Sarah, if she's listening. Hi, Sarah. Her brother J.D. kind of sometimes listens to. Hi, J.D. 
and Miles, his brothers with Kevin, who listens to the podcast. Some of my cousins, Gads, I'm Irish, so I have a lot of cousins. That's a stereotype that in my case is true, though. Um, That doesn't mean it's okay to stereotype all. It's just just trying to stay away from, try, try to stay away from stereotypes. And don't let me reinforce any anyway. God, so Miles Andrew, um, he's a young man. He loves he 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 he's a, he has both a love and a um aptitude for playing the drums. God's, and he wants to be great. He wants to be you know he wants to be transcendent almost. And he he listens to transcendent drum players. Like, I don't have time to explain what the drums are. They probably had them where you guys were originally. I probably, almost definitely, all all cultures, most for the most part, have a drummer, drum-like thing. And, um, like, Barky, a hollow tree, if you bang on that, that's a drum with another stick. All sticks that died of natural causes, of course, Barky. Uh, Smith, there's a lot of, um... Metal on drums, so you maybe you could uh, start wielding or what do you call it? You know, welding, uh, crafting some drums. Maybe that could be your thing. Miller, I don't know if you come across any um, animal skins, but we can, you know you can use those. But anyway, Andrew, he's a drummer god. He wants to be a great drummer, but you know he has he's filled with doubt. Well, he's a bit of doubt. Uh, or maybe he's not. I don't know how much doubt he has. With girl, he meets a girl. He has doubt with that, but he gets over that. And he, he's he, he's he's dealing with you know uh, resistance to him being good. Other people not being nice to him. Uh, you know, wo- 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 anyway, guys, he tries and he wants to be the best. And and it, just like everyone, God's, you know, not everybody's lucky enough like me to find some, you know. Acts, you know, maybe to be doing some other universe and say, well, I've been having trouble with this religion thing. I mean, who, who is this lovely older woman here who is just so wise? Most a lot of who, who is purportedly so wise, except when it comes to my bike getting stolen in Shannon Chelsea's apartments and a bunch of other stuff that you predict the future, but only when it's convenient because I guess I don't understand it because I'm not as wise as, as she is. And who is this man grinding the, uh, the grains of the universe so prodigiously? You know, I think that's the right usage of that word. Who is a smith casting... You know, the weapons for the universe to just keep, uh, you know, well, maybe do you cast anything else, Smith? I didn't even ask you that. And uh, who is this jester cracking us up? And who, of course, you know, especially in this world, Barky, there's no doubt about it. You got the, you take the CO2 and you put the O2, or is it oxygen O2 or is it just O, H2O? I don't know, Barky, I'm not a, I'm not a, periodic table but uh and who gives us the shade who gives us the leaves to rake up and then jump in but but but, but trees and why have a tree when you could have a god as a tree and why would have all trees were gods or maybe just the trees that had faces on them that would be great but so this young man even though he had the same name as me uh he didn't have a god like that gods you know 
drummer god. Uh, and then he, so then he had two men in his life, his father, lovely man, played by Paul Reiser, wonderful job by Mr. Paul Reiser. And then another man, a legend, a uh, legendary teacher who, who wanted to, you know, and uh, J.K. Simmons, holy moly, talk about acting, God. I hope, I hope, you know, I hope it was acting. But God, you know you were there. It was a battle for his soul. Um, and uh, that that seemed like what the movie was about, or was it? But the battle wasn't both external and internal. And the journey, the boy, went, you know, he's like, man, I thought this manhood would be just babes and drumming and living large, you know, jazzing it up like a jazzophone. And uh, it turns out it's not all, um, you know, that, that easy. It's like about work, hard work, pushing beyond your limits, being pushed beyond your limits. Is that okay? This doesn't feel okay. Is it okay? Oh, wait, is it people? We aren't treating each other with respect anymore. What does it mean to be the best? Do I want to be the best? Is simply the best? Is it? Does that even make sense? Oh, is my father's love? You know what? What example? What, all those questions got swirling around, and we get to be there watching the push and the pull, and then the boy who became a man, you know, taking steps in his own direction, maybe, without spoiling the movie, you know, and uh, making his way in the world today. And taking everything it's got, and just I, what a likable performance—not just good acting. And I've said, but it's important for me, God, to say, "Hey, I like this guy, this Andrew," and I like the way this actor is playing him. And uh, I don't know, there's just something about him beyond relatability. So I'm like, man, what's going to happen? What's up next for this guy? J.K. Simmons, we know and love him, and you will soon too, gods. Paul Reiser, welcome back. And, you know, I hope the road ahead for you is just as good. You know, you were know, you, you, terrific. And so that's it, gods, because um, uh, I can't spoil the movie. And I kind of spoiled it because I went on some tangent there about um, – religion and stuff, I think, but I just really, I, I was blown away. I don't know, you guys don't um, communicate with me, uh, so I didn't know what you thought about it. If I could guess Crone, I would think you probably said, hmm, at the end, hmm, um, hmm, right? Is that what you did at the very end? Or, you know, at the end, you know, at the part where you're like, whoa, and then you're like, whoa, whoa, and then the last part, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then you went, hmm, hmm. I mean, if you got over the, all the loud noises, Miller, um, I know whose side you took because you're all about hard work. I mean, you got to grind a mill. Smith, I mean, you got to, you're working under perfection too. So, I mean, those, you know, I can't imagine selling a Lannister sword if you did. I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't be really fair if you did, if you're such a god. Um, you should probably keep your swords and metaphor, you know, soul swords type stuff. But I can see you guys would probably take, you know, the side, one side. Um, Jester, I know you're strictly, you're Andrew, 100% right in the Andrew's position. And Barky, I guess you probably, Paul Reiser, dad, 
uh, you know, saying, hey, I'm here. I'm steady. Grow. I've been here. When you were sapling, I was covering you and keeping you safe from the elements. And, you know, I was here to make sure you had the oxygen that you needed. And I'm, I'm, I'll be here, you know, unless I get cut down by some jerk or something. Uh, I'll be here to keep watching over you, whatever happens. And, you know, my my brethren, Barky, you know, they, they do, the drumsticks are made of wood. So, but, so I don't know if that makes changes your opinion on the movie. Hope not. Uh, you know, sustainable, I'm sure. I'm positive. Uh, maybe. Nowadays, you could probably buy sustainable drumstick wood wood drumsticks now. And I'd say if I knew Andrew, and he probably, well, depend on the sound, you know. So that's my guess is as far as who, well, you don't have to take sides of them in a movie, guys, because it's not real. That's what I, uh, you sit back, you enjoy, talk about catharsis. Holy mackerel, life was catharted, catharted 100%. Cathartic multiple times. I mean, really, there was like one. The last, I don't know when that one part part was, but it was like. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of catharsis, and in the last five minutes, I almost cathartic. You know, you know, cathartic out. I thought Andrew was going to cathart. I don't know if you, if you're doing something though. If it's yeah, I guess drumming probably is cathartic. I don't know, guys. That's uh, it was a lot. I loved it. I hope you loved it. You know, and I love you guys. That's why I'm praying, and that's why I, you know, took you to the movies. And you know, Whiplash, gods, great, 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 great movie, great movie. Uh, first movie. Uh, I don't think we could have done better. I mean, you know, you could let me know. We, you know, we have ways of doing that here in my world. Uh, plenty of ways if you want to get a hold of me. Um, but I'm just going to assume that Crone, I'd say there's a 41, well, no, 49% chance you liked it, 51% chance you hated it, and 100% chance it, well, no, I guess, yeah, well, 49% chance you went, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then maybe, yeah. And then I know Smith and Miller, it was clear, you're J.K. Simmons guys, which I respect totally. I mean, and then uh, I just saw, oh, I just saw another cathartic moment, God. But listen, God, it's been good. It's a great movie, great times. I'll uh, talk to you soon. You know, if, you, if you're if you out of movies, I'm thinking about watching this Avengers show. No, Aven- just the Avengers. There's a movie called The Avengers. We're going to be seeing God's. I hope you like movies because I cannot wait for this spring, gods. It's going to be crazy. The the movies that are coming. Now, I think I got bad news, and I can't remember if this is true, that Star Wars isn't coming out to the Christmas time, which is a little bit disappointing, but it's fine, gods. We got so much other stuff. And then we'll be like, wow, we saw I got those summer movies. And then right right now, we'll, but next time we talk, this time we'll have already saw Star Wars a few times too, along with Mad Max, along with uh, Avengers and uh, many other wonderful things. So, but if you hate movies, hmm, 
don't smote anybody in my world. You know, just uh, and don't mess up my, you know, movie going ability. Uh, but you know, just you know, will you? I'm a, I can make ads.